Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars, creators, and industry leaders bringing Broadway and the theater industry back to life. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, we're looking to the future and finding out what theater and live performance need to move forward and hearing it from the artists, leaders, donors, and administrators who are on the ground and doing the work. Earlier this year, the Sundance Institute commissioned the artist, producer, and longtime dramaturg Jesse Cameron Alec to conduct an in-depth study to discover what the Institute, and by extension, the entire theater field, can learn from the events of 2020. Alec is the former company dramaturg at the Public Theater, and has just recently been appointed the Associate Artistic Director at the Vineyard Theater. And for the study, he spoke to more than 70 theater people, many of whom have appeared on this very podcast, including Lynn Nottage, Michael R. Jackson, Whitney White, Maria Goyanis, Shayna Taub, Nataki Garrett, and many more. Alec is in the virtual studio with me to tell us what theater makers have learned, what they lost, and what they urgently need to carry them into the future. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I wonder if we could start off with just having you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind the study and how you got involved. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's see, everything starts with the Sundance Theater program, which, as I'm sure you know, occupied such an important place in the theater community for over 40 years, I believe. Mm. Um, so uh, the artistic director there, Philip Hinberg, um, left, and Carrie Putnam, who is the brilliant executive director over at Sundance, oversees everything that Sundance does, really wanted to figure out a way that the program could reinvent itself. Um, and she started sort of chatting with people, you know, um, about like um, what the future of the field was and what the future of theater was. And she had great gut instincts. 
actually, I, before we go too far down that, we should maybe back up just a little bit to talk about for people who are maybe not familiar with what the Sundance Theater Institute does, if they're more familiar with the film festival or something. I mean, chances are the Sundance Theater Institute was involved in multiple shows you have seen on Broadway or at your local playhouse or things like that. They are uh, a big developmental uh, sort of powerhouse in terms of the talent they get and the projects that end up sort of moving on from there, right? I couldn't agree more with you. Um, Sundance, um, uh, the theater program at Sundance has uh, touched so many different projects that I love and are close to my heart. A Passing Strange, which was one of the first musicals, you know, that I really worked on at the public theater. Mm. Um, uh, and it just like, you know, it felt like Stu reached into my life and read my diary out loud um, with that one. And that started um, at Sundance as well as Fun Home, as well as a number of uh, big sort of projects. Um, and the way that the Sundance program works is that they take artists um, uh, and they take them um, to their uh, their their um, their place in Utah, um, their retreat center in Utah, which is completely gorgeous, up in the middle of the, of the mountains, in the middle of nowhere, and they just give them all the resources that they possibly can give artists. And there's no producers come there, um, and the artists are just allowed to work for three weeks um, on whatever they want to work on. Um, and it's been a really successful model for producing good work. Yeah, uh, but so now it sounds like they're thinking about making some changes. Uh, tell us more about sort of that and yeah. the survey, well, you know, how, how the survey is involved. Sure. Um, so um, after Philip left, Carrie had the sort of gut instinct that um, theater program needed to change. And um, and I think that she had a gut instinct that a lot of people in the field had that like things needed to change. Um, and boy, was she right. You know, and I think the <laughs> pandemic hit and we realized everything really needed to change. Um, I've been a dramaturg with Sundance over the last like three or four years. They bring me up to the retreats and I was lucky enough to sit, you know, and talk with amazing artists. And so Carrie and I have known each other for quite a while. And when the pandemic hit, she and I started to get into conversations. And over the course of six months, we just talked about what the field, what was happening in the field, what we wanted to have happen. Um, and eventually I asked Carrie if I could take the baton from her on this sort of, on the conversations that she had already started with a number of people um, in the field. And then I took the baton and I kind of ran with it. Um, the, the idea for, the idea, the original idea for this um, study was uh, to be an internal document for Sundance. And I was um, instructed to talk to people about the field and talk to them about Sundance and how the Sundance, the impact of the Sundance Theater Program and where it could go and how it could expand. And I definitely got into those conversations. But as I talked with people, it was kind of amazing. We just started to talk about everything. We started talking about, you know, the Black Lives Matter resurgence, you know, the theater field in general, um, uh, um, how we paid our artists, who should be leading us, who is in the conversations. And, and as I spoke with them, the interviews just became bigger and the project became bigger than it originally was. Um, and like the good producer and dramaturg I am, I decided to, to create a new form to fit the bigness of the sort of vision of it. And that's how we have the study right now. Right, yeah. And so what, from your impression, what did you feel like, uh, you sort of touched on this a little bit, what did you feel like Sundance in particular wanted to get out of this study? And then what did you personally want to get out of, or you know, creatively and professionally want to get out of this study as you started doing it? Uh, and those things overlap. If there's a Venn diagram of what Sundance wanted and what I wanted, there'd be some overlap, but there'd be some differences too. Um, uh, because I will say that um, uh, Sundance wanted to know what the future of live performance was going to be like, theater and live performance. And they wanted to have real findings from people who had gone to Sundance and people who had not gone to Sundance about what 
what the field's impression of Sundance was, where the, the place that it held in the right. field, the position um, that it held, and the place that it could hold. Um, mm. the, the, um, Sundance has always had a sort of uh, separation of church and state um, policy with the field. They don't let producers go to their retreats. They try and keep the art um, uh, separated from the sort of business of it all. Um, and it was, and, and, and they were wondering if that was the right way to move forward. Um, so I definitely had a lot of conversations with people about that, you know, and I think that goal was met. Um, and I will say that, like, in terms of what I want, wanted um, uh, from the sort of, um, you know, this um, project was one, I definitely wanted to help Sundance. I have a vested interest in the theater program coming back. I think it was vital to what, um, you know, the field is. And I think it was vital to the work that they um, that they do at Sundance. And so I really wanted to be involved in that. But I will also say that um, an impulse that was like, that attracted me to this project and really overcame me was the opportunity to gossip with people. You know, th this is what we do so much in the theater is we talk, you know, and if I have one uh, um, talent as a dramaturg, it's my talent to sit with people and have a conversation and let the truth rise to the surface. Um, and so the opportunity to go and talk with people for just an hour, all these interviews were, were less than an hour for the most part, and just talk to them about how they were doing and what was going on and what their ideas um, were, was incredibly attractive and it did not disappoint. Um, mm -hmm. I will say that the pandemic was hard, you know, for all of us. It was hard for me, um, especially. And just getting the opportunity to talk with people, um, it saved me. Mm. And b before we get into the sort of specifics of what you found in this survey, what broadly did you find you got from this study that you maybe didn't expect, you personally? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that is a very good question. I think there was like a lot of sort of surprising things. I'd say the, the, the first most surprising, surprising thing is that I spoke with a lot of different artists um, and different arts workers um, uh, from all across the United States, from a number of different countries. Um, and the exact same things came up in the conversation. And seeing the sort of collective consciousness at work was delightful. And, and seeing literally dozens of people um, talking to me about the same problem and offering up similar solutions to that problem was a beautiful mm. thing. It really made me think, oh, you know, despite being separate, we in sort of theater and light performance, we're on the same page. We all understand what the problems are. We might argue about the solutions, but we know what's wrong um, mm. in the sort of like field. Um, and, and then one of the biggest, you know, and I'm sure we'll come to this later on, but one of the biggest um, uh, findings um, that I found surprising and beautiful was the idea of field ideation um, and mm. that the idea that theater theater and live performance need a home for thought and conversation. Mm. Um, and that right now, um, we do not have an ability to have a healthy conversation. Right. Um, um, I think our conversations get very tense. I think that um, uh, oftentimes leadership and people at institutions clam up and, you know, and hold things tight and they're very, very worried. There's quite a lot of fear um, and apprehension um, in the field. And we have to, like any family, we have to figure out how to talk to each other and work things out. And so many people said the exact same thing. Huh. Yeah. Before we go more into that, let's talk a little bit more about the pool of people you talk to, sort of sure. how many people you talk to and what your goals were in terms of the makeup of who they are and what they're, you know, how they identified on whatever level and what their various roles were in the industry. How did you sort of think about putting that? Uh, group together. Absolutely. So um, I, I, um, I uh, started with the sort of goals with Sundance, um, uh, mm. with uh, Michelle Satter and Carrie Putnam at Sundance. We talked about the goals quite a lot. And um, we set the sort of like modest goals of me talking to 40 different individuals, and then writing a 10 page report, you know, which makes me <laughs> smile because like that didn't happen, mm -hmm. you know, because right. as I started to talk to people, 
people would say to me, are you talking to so-and-so? And then mm-hmm. I talked to that person. They were like, have you talked to so-and-so? And so it led me on a kind of journey where eventually I ended up interviewing 76 people. And I believe that the report, including all the profiles, is about 150 pages mm-hmm. um, now, which is completely delightful. <laughs> um, uh, um, so um, the, um, the goal was to, you know, have a breadth of people, you know, to, to have represented, you know, artists and arts workers, um, to have different disciplines um, uh, represented, um, to have, you know, not only theater, but actually theater and live performance, which is an important distinction um, because we were even in the, the sort of impulse in the study, we were questioning what theater is, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that theater belongs to a bigger family, which is theater and live performance. And I think the pandemic was really um, right from the very beginning. It started to blur the lines between what is theater and what is live performance. So we wanted a lot of representation, you know, um, in all of that. And of course, you know, um, because of who I am and how I walk through the world, it was really important for me to have um, a lot of sort of different uh, racial representations um, as well. Um, the, the methodology I will say that I used was not, you know, I, I don't think that like you could put my methodology in a book because eventually or essentially I said, uh, who do I want to talk to? You know, who do I miss? Mm-hmm. You know, who's smart? Who would I go to for advice? And I just started hitting up the sort of like, you know, artists that I know personally, or artists that I know their work. Um, and I know that they have said smart things. And I just sort of started to collect people. Um, um, the interdisciplinary staff um, at the uh, at the um, Sundance Institute also contributed a number of names uh, of people that I didn't know, especially people working at interdisciplinary new media sort of people. And that was fantastic um, uh, as well. Um, but I, I did definitely, my methodology, methodology was to reach my hands into the pool that exists and see what came back. Um, yeah. Primarily artists or entirely artists, or there were some who are not. Uh, tell us more about sort of who, in addition to kind of playwrights and uh, other creators, like who else did, uh, what other kinds of roles in the industry did you talk to? I mean, it, I, I'm a primarily artists. This question um, demands the the follow up question: What is an artist? You know, which <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll, I'll set aside for later on. Um, but um, uh, it was definitely like sort of playwrights um, and directors. You know, traditional playwrights, directors, lyricists, composers. You know, it was choreographers um, as well. It was a lot of interdisciplinary artists um, who, um, and by that I mean people who are working with new media and often live on stage, but working with you know sort of um, technology in an interesting way. Um, for example, Valencia James is an artist who um, uh, uses sort of um, um, motion capture on her body and then dances in digital environments live in front of a digital audience. Before the pandemic, she danced in front of an actual in-person audience, and now she dances in digital environments for a digital um, sort of audience. Um, so, so those sort of artists as well, um, as well as people who work at institutions, um, a number of artistic directors, a number of dramaturgs, um, uh, those sorts of um, folks, and then a number of donors as well. Um, uh, I think I spoke with three or four um, donors, people who sit on boards of directors of various sort of institutions. And then lastly, I would say thought leaders, you know, mm-hmm. people who are smart and interesting and who we should listen to, you know, um, and there was definitely a lot of overlap in all these sort of categories. Um, the thought leaders are some of the most interesting kinds of people. They do a lot of different things um, in the theater and live performance fields, um, but the definition of who they are is sort of tricky. Mm. And so there's no sort of commercial element in terms of what you were looking for in terms of talking to a, a commercial producer, for instance, or something like that. That was not, was that something you thought about? For? Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, Gordon. I did speak to a couple mm-hmm. of um, commercial um, theater producers um, as well. Um, the, um, you know, Mara Isaacs runs Octopus um, uh, yeah. Theatricals and she was mm-hmm. one of the commercial theater, uh, theater producers that I spoke yeah. with. It's interesting, you know, because she and even in She has an institutional um, background, right? And, exactly. She, yeah. she, she exists in a liminal space, you know. Mm-hmm. So even thinking about Mara as a commercial theater producer is a little tricky 
tricky in my head, even though right. I know, of course, she does do that. Yeah, right. And so these were uh, virtually uh, conducted, I'm guessing, the interviews? Every, every single one of these interviews was conducted right here, where we are right now. <laughs> um, yep. And it was all recorded. I was all recorded on Zoom, and then I did the transcripts um, afterwards. Um, there, was, there was lots of questions that were asked. I mean, we had some form questions that Sundance um, helped me yep. come up with. Um, but it's worth saying that the conversations took a life of their own. Yeah, I was just going to ask, is there, I imagine people had a lot to say, it sounds like. Oh, they had a lot to say. They were <laughs> spilling all the tea, all the gossip. Um, and it was it was totally delightful to, to, to talk with them, you know, about what was going on and, and what their experience was. Right. You know, because like we were all we were all locked apart from each other. And, and in many ways, we still are locked apart from, um, from each other. And people really had like interesting things to say and interesting reflections. I think the pandemic also, it's worth saying, has changed us. It's changed us all individually, you know, um, being scared in our homes and really thinking about like what we're doing as artists, as people who work in theater, you know, what we can contribute. And it's made people more honest mm. um, uh, and more, you know, forthright and, uh, and and really demanding things, you know, demanding the truth. Um, so it's worth saying that the conversations were very honest. Mm. Um, people told me the absolute truth. I also said to every single person that, you know, if you say anything you don't want it in the report, I will not put it in the report. You know, there are no gotcha moments, you know, there is no scandal. I'm not trying to, to out anyone. And that actually freed people up to just talk to me. Um, about whatever they want. I'll have more with Jesse right after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now here's more with Jesse Cameron Alec. And so what did they talk to you about? Uh, kind of uh, t t talk us through sort of broadly what you found and what you ended up discussing. Uh, mm -hmm. sort of distilling down uh, the kind of all the many voices into kind of broader uh, themes. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll say this, you know, um, uh, as I talked with people, I, I interviewed people, I asked them what they did and, and, and who they are. I asked them about um, what the pandemic had taken from them and what the pandemic had given to them. Um, I asked them about their experience in the Black Lives Matter um, resurgence, you know, what they th thought about the field, how the field was handling white supremacy and anti-Blackness um, more specifically. Um, uh, I, I talked to them about what they thought the future was going to be. Um, uh, I, I talked to them about what they thought the future was going to be and what they wanted the future to be, you know? Um, uh, so like uh, we talked about a lot of different things um, in these sort of things. And it's worth saying that in the, when I started this study, I didn't know the form the study was going to take. Um, and then as I spoke with people, people started repeating the same things, mm -hmm. you know, like all the conversations, probably about halfway through um, uh, my interviews, um, I started to see the themes. They were rising towards the top and people very largely agreed upon um, the most important things uh, for the theater and light performance fields to concentrate um, in the future on. Um, right, right. So tell us about those. Talk us, okay. talk us through those. 
Okay, great. Um, well, I'll, I'll just go in order because that's the way I, I think of, uh, about them. Um, even as I talk, I've lived with this report for such a long time, you know, and it just like really, you know, it exists in, in my head. In yeah, you started order. in January, is that right? Yep, January is when I started in years, yeah. Uh, which is interesting because like I will say that like um I think that time moves so quickly now. Um and so these these interviews were captured between January and uh, I would say end of April of this year. Um and but even in the last 2 months things have started to evolve. But what I will say is I'm very pleased to watch as things start to change. Um they're matching my themes. I'm glad that reality actually agrees with the sort of conclusions that I came up with. Um so the, the first theme um, was shared leadership. Um, and this was the idea of really um, uh, discussing the way in which um, the way that we have leaders structured in uh, the American theater and sort of the international theater is a system that isn't working. Um, and that a lot of people know that it's not working. It hasn't been working for a, um, a while. Um, and breaking open the idea that this is the only way that we can have, that we can run institutions or run theaters, um, and that there are different ways. Um, and there's different... Yeah. You're talking specifically about the sort of hierarchical artistic director, for instance, one, you know, kind of tentpole position that uh, I absolutely am. Has all the I, I, okay. I absolutely am. Whether you call that person an artistic director or, you know, artistic producer or head, head um, you know, curator, they're, they're sort of called different things depending on the institution. But like, yes, we're talking about the person in charge and that person making all the decisions about what is good and what is substandard um, and how um, to lead the institution. Um, and like um, the, the really sort of big takeaway, um, uh, that I got from my, um, my interviews and uh, the conclusion that I set forth in the study is that the solution to the system of cisgendered white male supremacy in sort of like, you know, um, these institutions is not to get rid of all the white guys leading the institutions and replace them with black guys in, uh, leading the institutions. That's actually not the the, the solution. And um, people knew that. Um, it's, the solution rather was to reshape the idea of leadership itself, you know, um, and bring and um, start experimenting with other ideas of um, uh, shared or circular leadership, um, where that has, maybe you have for artistic directors, like the Wilma Theater um, has, where each season a different artistic director is curating. But all throughout, all the artistic directors are there helping out with the serve sort of, um, process. Um, uh, so four different artistic directors, or you have one artistic director that doesn't make any of the decisions without a council of sort of people, or you have two artistic directors. Um, They're always in conversation with each other. Um, the idea that um, institutions can, um, can be led by one person um, is kind of, I think it's an antique um, sort of idea. And I think it's also connected to um, the capitalist way in which we think of things of one person being great. Um, and the idea that a lot of people have brought forth was everyone can be great, you know, and that if we have shared leadership, it will actually bring in different points of view into the conversation. It will put leadership into conflict with itself, you know, where we actually have to have conversations about things that we uh, disagree upon. And that will actually lead to more exciting things. Experimentation, riskier art. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one. That's and, one of them. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there's four, you know, so yeah. um, uh -huh. we'll get to it. Um, um, the next one was uh, holistic artist support. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's worth saying, like, Gordon, a lot of these sort of themes, um, like when you talk about them sort of casually, they have a kind of, yeah, totally, you know, they have a, a feeling to them of, I kind of knew that, like, you right. know, like, for for, for example, with holistic artist support, you know, um, I, I, a number of people talk to me about how artists are not doing well. 
Mm. Um, and they haven't been doing well in the sort of theater and live performance field for a really long time. I will say that institutionally, before the pandemic, I think things were going great for institutions. I think money was being made. I think there was like, you know, a sort of a lot of institutions had deals with commercial theater producers and Broadway. And there was like, you know, real revenue streams um, uh, that were being built. Um, but the money wasn't getting to the artists. Um, the the sort of industry remained a place that if you want to be um, a theater and live performance artist, you have to have another job or you have to be supported, you know, by something else, you know, like family inheritance or something like that. And then the pandemic hit. And then I think that everything was laid bare, you know, in terms of like pretty much every single one of my friends was on unemployment. Um, right. And so holistic, holistic artistic support would be things like childcare or are you thinking sort of broadly for their just, you know, basic, human well-being is that the kind of like things that people were talking about Childcare is something that uh, was brought up um, mm. in, in the study, absolutely. Um, and, and the idea of thinking about people's lives in a mm. holistic sort of, um, uh, you know, 365 degrees sort of way. Um, but what I'm talking about is paying artists. So oh, I'm talking okay. about paying artists more, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about cash in people's Just hands. Straight up, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and not only paying artists more, because I think like if we take actors, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, paying actors more, you know, is, is one sort of step. But a, a bigger step is actually hiring artists, institutions actually hiring artists. It's, you know, it's easy to make, you know, um, a living in the theater if you're a marketing manager. Or if you're a development officer, if you're like a company dramaturg, you know, um, um, although sometimes easy. Um, but like um, it's hard to make a living in the theater if you're a playwright. Um, and now this is like an inverted pyramid, right? You know, where like, you know, we make all of our money off of a, a small number of artists and we make a lot of money, enough to support you know, thousands of arts workers, um, and yet not enough money to support the artists themselves. Um, the solution is just to hire artists, institutions to just hire artists, give them a salary, give them health insurance, give them all the benefits, and, and let them write. You know, let them be directors, let them be designers, let them create work. Um, and it's not just a nice thing to do. You know, I think that we should do it just because it's a nice thing to do, but it's actually the way to create great art also. Yeah. Huh. Um, and and then there's uh, one of the themes is involves digital theater as well. Is that right? It does digital theater and hybrid futures. Yeah. Um, um, so um, uh, and and that um, uh, that theme specifically talked about um, theater's relationship with technology. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I often say as a joke to people that. Um, if we had our way, theater people would still be lighting the stage with candles. Um, um, but the amazing thing about this pandemic is it, it dragged us kicking and screaming, you know, five, 10 years into the future. And yeah. suddenly overnight, you know, yeah. we had to reckon with things. We had to reckon with Zoom. And listen, a lot of my friends would tell me that, you know, Zoom is a horrible thing. And, you know, the, the art on Zoom is, is really quite questionable. But I would say that, that you know, that, that's an interesting thing to say, I think, because if you look at the art on Zoom, sometimes it can be questionable if it wasn't created for Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, but if, as we know, as artists, you create the art for the medium. And if you look at the work that was actually created for the medium of Zoom, it's amazing, you know? And of course, there are so many different platforms outside of Zoom. And artists have been working on on Twitch, on, you know, right. all sorts of different sorts of things, you know, and creating kind of amazing art over the last year. And what was the, did you find the consensus was in terms of what, what makes something theatrical when it exists in another medium and how do they imagine, how do you find people are imagining the way uh, hybrid theater will 
uh, we are, I mean, I think anyway, continue to exist even after we can all, you know, fully safely be in a room together and breathe the same yeah, air. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I will say, you know, at the, at the top of this, that I don't think that theater is going away, traditional theater. I don't think yeah. that, that, you know, plays and musicals and experimental um, theater pieces are going away and we're all going to like just do this digitally. I think people are starving to be in, in rooms with each other. And I don't think there's any replacing um, that sort of experience. But But the question was raised like a number of times. So what is live? What are we doing? You know, this, this, you know, conversation that we're having right now, Gordon, this is live, you know, we're both human beings in spaces, even though we're not in the same space with each other. And, and there's a quality to the conversation that's a live conversation. Um, and I think that the same thing was discovered with a lot of the sort of digital work that was created um, over the last um, year. I, I know a lot of theater artists that have projects in the works where it is a live sort of performance with people in a space with each other, but there are elements of the performance that are happening digitally at the same time and being beamed in, in some sort of way into people's um, sort of world. Yeah. And there are so many reasons to incorporate that, that aren't just creative, but also in terms of expanding accessibility and things like that, right? Like there are so many reasons to sort of keep a lot of what we have learned from. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a knife that cuts both ways because in terms of accessibility, you know, I go into this in my study in mm -hmm. some ways, you know, this year, like I think really opened up accessibility for a lot of artists with disabilities. Um, they were able to create art and witness art much more, you know, than they were in the in the olden times. Right. Um, and then at the same time, a lot of artists that I spoke with, you know, um, in the United States and in other countries talked about the barriers that technology, you know, puts up as right. well, you know, right. um, in terms of, of access. So like, <clears throat> doing um, doing uh, just digital theater would be a mistake, you know, because it would have just as many barriers. But it's going to the future is going to be about doing both and finding the pathway to them. I, I, I might just add also that an interesting sort of conclusion that I found um, uh, uh, in the report was that the artists who were already interdisciplinary artists, they were already hyphenate artists, did better during the pandemic. They were able to pivot. They were able to put their, their their resources somewhere else, their creative resources into something else, and they were able to continue to create, um, which is a reason why we should actually be investing in our artists and teaching them the sort of material skills that comes along with technology. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned a little earlier in our uh, in our conversation, uh, field ideation is uh, a big a biggie of one of the big things you came out mm -hmm. of this uh, study with or talking about thinking about mm -hmm. um what's that mean and what does it look like do, or do people think it might look like uh in the future mm -hmm. um field ideation is a very fancy way of saying talking about ideas mm -hmm. um and I, I think that like over the last year it has been really interesting to witness um the field have conversations because we've been having a lot of conversations you know and they have been deep and interesting and there have been a lot of emotions involved um in, in them and people have uh, enthusiastically joined the conversations and people have enthusiastically backed out of the conversations um as well um and i will say that like the sort of a diagnosis if I was a doctor talking to the American theater, I'd say, you don't know how to talk. You know, you are a family that does not know how to get into a con healthy conversations with each other. It's hard to hear uh, the truth and it's hard to actually respond to the truth um, and come up with like ideas and solutions. Um, so, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. Field ideation is my last um, 
my last theme that I talk about in my study, but I actually think it's the first one to start with. You know, that if the field was going to take on something first, it would be field ideation. It'd be creating these sort of centers where we can get into conversations about what's going on. What are the problems? You know, what have we suffered um, um, with over the last year? What have we suffered with in the years before that? You know, and really dig into what the solutions are. Because um, I will also say that like this, this uh, report filled me with a lot of hope. Um, uh, like there are smart minds out there in our field and they have ideas and a lot of the ideas are good ones. Um, and we need to talk about those ideas and figure them out. And what does the forum look like? Is, did anyone sort of imagine what a possible forum for this kind of conversation about ideas might be or how, uh, you know, one might convince a family to talk, uh, to engage in more healthy conversation with its members? I'll say this. Um, in terms of like, um, uh, as with, you know, theater and live performance in, in general is about the place. It's about the location that it happens in. And so a lot of people talked about that. Where do we have these conversations? Um, what, this is, we are in a time right now where artists and a lot of arts workers too have a deep mistrust of institutions. So what is the right institution to have this conversation? What is the sort of, you know, where do we locate this conversation? A lot of people like sort of talked about parameters about that. You know, what, what is an ethical institution that can hold these conversations? Mm. Um, uh, but no one came to a conclusion about that. And also no one came to a conclusion about the form that these conversations should take necessarily. Um, my, my study in general gives a lot of sort of ideas and, and it doesn't give a lot of conclusions. It doesn't give a lot of solutions to what our problems are necessarily. Um, but I think the first step is like realizing that you have a problem, you know, and then, and then actually being willing to step into the conversation about let's talk about that sort of problem and figure that out. I know with this study, um, uh, the Sundance Institute, um, as soon as we talked, I, I presented the internal study to them. They're immediately like, let's rewrite this thing for the field. Um, and then like right after that, Carrie, you know, ambitious, you know, um, person that she is was like, um, hey, let's figure out a way to have this conversation in a bigger way, mm. you know? So like, that's what this entire effort is, is, you know, we've made, you know, a presentation. We also made a film version of this presentation um, uh, directed by filmmaker Zach Murphy so that people can witness it in different sort of ways, depending on how people take in information. And where um, is that? Is that available? You've made the study available at a website called emergingfromthecave.com. Is that where that film is, lives as well? So everything is going to be um, uh, is going to live on emergingfromthecave.com. Um, so if you go to that website, you'll be able to one see the presentation, which is totally beautiful and designed very well, and then you'll also be able to see the film, you know, which is beautiful if you if you can stand my voice for that long, you know. Um, and then also um, we have a fee we have a feedback um, portal also where we're hoping that people like go to this website, um, they witness the presentation, or they see the film, or they do both, and then they give us feedback about things that we missed. Um, I'm only one person and I only I did this in six months and there are tons of things that I missed and tons of ideas that I did not capture in this. And the hopes is that we can start gathering these sort of other ideas um, and figure out the sort of next step. Um, and Carrie is very excited about the idea of also doing a live convening of mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, to, to, to discuss this document, um, discuss the ideas in it, you know, sort of wisdom held and also talk about all the things that this document missed and continue the conversation. Yeah. Uh, we spoke a little bit about this before we uh, turned the microphones on, but um, you are in a process of transition yourself. You are just starting uh, a new gig at a new theater for you. Um, how do all the things that you have learned from this study, how do you anticipate all the things you have learned from this study influencing the way you do your job going forward? 
Yeah. And, and as I said, um, uh, when we were talking, Gordon, you've caught me at such an interesting day. It's mm -hmm. my last day at the public theater after 15 years, which is an institution that I literally grew up in. You know, I became a man at the public theater. Um, and then also I started um, at the Vineyard Theater at the, as the associate artistic director. Um, I feel like the universe always rhymes. You know, things happen at the same time to influence, you know, um, things. And um, and I don't think that, like, this moment could have been better shaped. Um, doing this report taught me a lot. Hmm. It shaped me. Um, it, it made me think about what artists need um, and what my priorities um, should be. And what really the priorities that everyone should have at institutions. But I'll speak for myself that, like, doing this report and, you know, spending so much time with it really taught me how um, I should be working as someone who is a supporter of artists. So I anticipate carrying a lot, you know, into my sort of new roles at the Vineyard. Uh, can you give us some specifics by, by any chance in terms of insights that you uh, gained that you maybe hadn't thought as much as you feel like you should have previous to this? Um, well, well, I'll say this, you know, um, uh, uh, um, a big sort of insight that I had um, uh, doing um, this report um, is that um, racism and anti-blackness in the theater is real. It's really real. Um, and and of course, I'm I'm a black man. I'm working in the American theater, so I knew that. But I I, I believe that like um, my sort of policy before um, uh, doing this report was like, great, we have to find ways to navigate around that. We have to figure out how to get our work done despite that. And thus, my career has been full full of uh, theatrical projects that really fight against racism and anti-blackness on the stage, you know, but backstage, you know, and in the office, it's still occurring uh, and stuff. And I think that before this year, I thought that that was impossible to change. Um, I, I, um, and I think that, I mean, the entire year, but doing this report really taught me that everything is possible and actually anything can happen, which is terrifying, but it's also really, really very exciting. Um, so I think that the ways in which we can have like, you know, sort of anti-racist, you know, practices um, in the rehearsal room as we're reading scripts, as we're talking um, to, to playwrights is really important and interesting. Um, I think that also, um, uh, you know, the influence of money is inescapable um, in the uh, American theater. And I, I do think that we need to need to accept that. But I think that like we have to uh, commit ourselves to ways to make sure artists can feed themselves. They can't create the work if they can't put, you know, food on, on the table. And I think that at the Vineyard, that'll be a really big concentration of mine is uh, figure out ways. How can we have resident artists? How can we get people health insurance? You know, which one would think that that isn't my job, you know, as a sort of dramaturg. But it is. My job is to make sure that this writer can write a good play and they need dinner and the ability to go to a doctor in order to do that. Um, so that's definitely sort of, you know, um, things that... Um, I'm thinking of. And, and then one last thing I'd say is that um, I think that there's incredible gravity um, right now at, at work as, um, as theaters start to open up. And I think that gravity is pulling us back to what was. And I think that we have to resist the urge to go back to, to what was um, uh, because it wasn't good. And also because trying to go back to what was will not be successful. The old world is gone. You know, the, the new world is waiting for us and we're at the edge of a cliff and we're going to fall either way. Um, and so like we either fall in fear or we fall and leap in excitement. Um, so I'm leaping. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think we all look forward to uh, seeing what the new world uh, will bring us. So thank you, Jesse. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was Jesse Cameron Alec, who worked with the Sundance Institute to conduct the independent study Emerging from the Cave, Reimagining Our Future and Live Performance. 
The study is out today, and you can find out more at emergingfromthecave.com. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, I'd so appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and I do. Or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes or subscribe on all the pod places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. I'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.